It is a delight and a privilege to be with you this morning, and I am thankful for the invitation to be here with you. Your minister, Jeremiah Thomas, has been preaching a series of messages, and the title of that message series is Homecoming and Heart Checks. And he has taken those messages about homecoming and heart check from two prophets. He preached first of all on Haggai, and now he is preaching through Zechariah. Two prophets sent by God to the people who had come back from the Babylonian captivity and come back to Jerusalem God had brought them home. There was a homecoming. And God sent his messengers, the prophets, because the people of God needed to hear the word of God as they came back to do the work of God. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, sometimes they need to rebuke or reprove, and sometimes they needed exhortation, and sometimes they needed encouragement. And God's faithful prophets came during that difficult time, yet a key time within the life of the people of God, and spoke the word of God to the people of God. And his word, as Isaiah tells us, will not return to him void, and we read that it accomplished its purpose there, that the temple was rebuilt, that the wall was rebuilt, and more importantly, that the people's lives were also changed. Well, I want to continue that theme this morning, the theme of homecoming and heart check, but not from a known prophet, but rather from an unknown poet. And though we do not know the poet's name, who wrote this particular psalm that we'll be looking at, what we do know, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, that he was an inspired poet, for all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, complete for every good work. So I want to do that, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we bow before you in dependence upon you, you who so inspired the writer to give us your word written. And we pray in dependence upon you for eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive your word. We pray in dependence upon you for grace to apply that word. We pray that as we look to your word, that you would search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and see if there be some grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. And we make our prayer in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126. 
on page 517 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 126. Here then the word of God. A song of sense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams into the gift. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in his sheaves. Over the Father's Day weekend, sort of a long weekend, Ruth and I were able to go to Bon Karkin. And there we met with our two daughters. We had not seen our two daughters since Easter, April the 4th. Oh, we'd FaceTime with them and we'd Zoom with them and all that, but we hadn't been able to see them in person and so we had some catching up to do. And there were a couple of days in there that we normally celebrate together that we weren't able to because of this COVID season, but when we got together, we were able to do so. And so we celebrated Mother's Day. And then we celebrated our oldest daughter's birthday. It was born on June the 10th. And we celebrated Father's Day. Had a wonderful time at Bon Karkin. And then we got in the car and we came home on Monday and when we got home, we looked at each other and said, it's good to be home. I mean, we've been gone three whole days. And it was good to be home. I don't know whether we would make very good candidates for being away a week at summer camp or not. Whether we could make it that long. But the older we get, it is good to get home. There is no place like home. Now, if I can go from that which is not quite serious to something far more serious, we know that in the year 586, 587 B.C., that the people of the southern kingdom of Judah did not plan a trip. We're not looking to make a trip, but were evicted from their homes and were carried off into captivity some 1,600 miles away to a place called Babylonia. Their city had been destroyed, the walls had been torn down, and the temple had been razed. And the reason for that is because they had forsaken the covenant of their God. They had gone after false gods and idols. They had turned away from God's messengers that he sent consistently and constantly to them that they repent or else there would be exile. And yet they hardened their hearts. And as a result of that, God raised up Babylonia and Babylonia would come in and would take the people of God 
and would transport them some 1,600 miles away to Babylonia. Now, if there was a hope for a short turnaround and a return to normalcy, as you and I might well understand even better in this season of COVID, it was not to come. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to those who were in exile, and he said to them, build houses, plant gardens, have children, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, it's going to be a while. And that while was some 70 years, 70 years in exile. Some people went into exile never ever to return, never ever to see their homeland again. But the God who sent them into exile also was the God who promised that he would bring them back. But I wonder how it was. What was the sentiment of God's people when they were in exile? Well, God gives us a poetic description of how they felt. Psalm 137 says that by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. If I were to outline that, that portion of Psalm 137, that's not all of 137, I would put it under one, one word, homesick. Homesick. And yet the God who had sent them into exile was the God who would also bring them out. He said in Jeremiah 29 through the prophet that he would visit those who had taken them into exile and he would punish them and he would bring them back for he says I know my plans for you says the Lord for your welfare and not for evil and for a future and a hope God would bring his people back there would be a homecoming and the first thing that I want us to notice about this is that this is a historic fact there was a real exile you can date it, 586, 587. But there was also a real return by God of his people. The God who had promised is faithful and able to do that which he says he will do. And he did it. He brought his people back. That is a historic fact. But you and I are not here for a history lesson. The question is, what does that have to do with you and with me this morning? The fact that God would promise something and deliver on that promise in time and space and in history. Well, let's remember why it is that the people of God went into exile. And the reason is, in three short letters, 
sin. They had sin against the Lord. And because of that, they were taken out. They were exiled. If you think about that, we have something in common with those people who were exiled by sin. You and I are by nature sinners. And the scripture tells us that back in chapter 3 of Genesis that our parents, Adam and Eve, failed to obey the word of God. And as a result of that, they were, if we may put it this way, exiled. They were driven out of the garden. They were driven east of Eden. And there was a guard placed over the tree of life. And they had no access to get back to that. No power to get back to that. And they were driven away. Exiled. But within that third chapter of the book of Genesis, there is good news. That God said that through the seed of a woman, he would raise up one whose heel would be bruised. Yes, he would suffer, but who also would crush the head of Satan. That's the good news. That's the good news that God had promised, even at the fall of man, that he would do this. It says in our text, when... When the Lord brought again the captivity. When he, when he restored the fortunes. Go to Galatians chapter 4. And it says this. When, when, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us who are under the curse of the law. There was a real fall. But there is real redemption. And in the fullness of time, he would send forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, who would suffer, who would die, but who would also rise again on the third day that we might have life. It's a historical fact. But there's something else here. There's a, there's a, there's a theological truth here. It says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Israel. When the Lord brought back the captives, as it says in the New American Standard Version, it says that the Lord did this, and that's the truth. That's the truth that we need to see. They had forsaken the Lord. They had forsaken his covenant. They had gone after idols, and yet salvation, there's the truth, salvation is of the Lord. And if we hope ever to be saved, it's only He who can save us. Think of those people over here in Babylonia and they're in exile. How in the world can you take them and bring them back over here to Jerusalem so that they can do the work of God and the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall and of their society? How do you do that? Well, they couldn't do it in and of themselves. They're a picture of hopelessness and helplessness apart from the grace of God. But God said, I have a plan for you. Welfare, not evil. To give you a future. To give you a hope. The truth is this. If we hope ever to be saved, 
from the greater bondage of sin and misery. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can save. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. His apostles said that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The Apostle Paul says it's by grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a theological truth. And the question is, who are you trusting in this day? Who am I trusting in this day for my salvation, for your salvation? There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is of the Lord. He alone could bring them back. He alone could restore to them his blessings. And he has done so. He has done so marvelously. It says when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion. This this recoming back from exile is not the only time that he did that. We know of other times that he did that. In fact, back in the book of Exodus, there was uh, not 70 years, there were something like 430 years of captivity, and you had a people who were under the dominion of another country, and they were oppressed, and they were unable to save themselves. God knew that would happen. God had told Abraham that was going to happen. But he also said he would deliver them after the iniquity of the Amorite was full. And God would send forth one to bring his people out of Egypt. God provided. God is able. God is faithful. Salvation is only of him. The third thing I want you to notice here is that it's a cause for great joy. The gospel brings joy. Only the gospel can bring true joy. And there is joy here. The folks that come back, I believe, who come back from the exile here, to them it's like a dream. It's sort of like somebody saying, don't pitch me if this is a dream. I don't want to wake up. This is great. We're back home. Even in the midst of the rubble, we're back home. God has brought us back. God has kept his word. He's faithful and able to do so. And there was joy. And in their mouth, there was laughter. And on their tongue, there were shouts of joy. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's one thing to say after a three-day weekend, it's good to be home. It's another thing after 70 years to come back and say, you know something? It's really good to be home. Laughter, joy, cause for great joy. What's that have to do with you and with me? John Stott says, if these folks here had cause for rejoicing, how much more we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been delivered from a greater bondage, the bondage of sin and misery. It almost, perhaps, is enough to make a Presbyterian say amen. Hallelujah. 
praise the Lord. You remember Philip was led by the Spirit of God to an Ethiopian eunuch who was riding back home. He had gone up to Jerusalem to worship and he was on his way home and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah about the one who would be led like a sheep to the slaughter who did not raise his voice and whose humiliation would be deprived of justice and he's somehow reading this I don't know whether he was texting and driving or not but he was reading from Isaiah 53 and yet he doesn't know what it means and so the Lord, the gracious Lord, sends this one who does know what it means. And it says that he went up to him and he presented unto him or he proclaimed unto him Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He is the one who was wounded for that eunuch's transgressions and bruised for his iniquities. The chastisement that he should have endured was laid upon him because that eunuch, like all of us, had gone astray. He needed the good news. By the grace of God, he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us that Philip was taken away by the Lord and the eunuch saw him no more. But what else does it say? And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. If anybody has cause for joy, it is the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone has cause for joy, it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed by his blood. But we're not talking about something that is contingent upon the circumstances or the condition that we find ourselves in in this daily life. You may come with a heavy heart this morning. You may come with a burden on your heart. You may come with something that is troubling you. But the joy of the Lord can still be your strength. Indeed, the joy of the Lord should be our strength. When the apostles were, were threatened not to speak again in the name of Jesus, they were beaten. And they left the council. And the scripture tells us this, that they went away rejoicing. And when's the last time somebody, either verbally or physically, inflicted pain upon you and you rejoiced? Yet they rejoiced that they have been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Paul and Silas, beaten, thrown into prison, feet put in stocks unjustly. And at midnight, of all things, they're praying and singing hymns. Joy. Joy. Do you know the joy of the Lord? It's the joy of the Lord. Your strength that ought to characterize the people of God. Last, in these first three verses, not only is it the cause of great joy, but it is something that is to be told. If God has done this for his people, then, then it's something that must be told. It, it, can't be, it can't be held back. Even the nations say, 
here in Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for them. But notice what it says next. What the people of God say. There's something different. And what they say is this, the Lord has great, done great things for us. I can't help but think of Rahab there in Jericho. She knew what the Lord had done for his people. She'd heard what the Lord had done for his people. She could tell to the spies who came to spy out the land. We know of what the Lord has done there in, there in Egypt and against the others. We know that he's given you deliverance and victory. We know all that. And after the walls came down, she could tell what the Lord had done for her. Well, you hear the gospel, hear the gospel, but have you come by grace to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as your, as your Lord and as your Savior? Do you have a testimony? Can you tell somebody else what the Lord has done for you that you yourself could never do because salvation is of the Lord and only he is strong to save? might be different for different people. The way in which we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes more dramatically than others. But we come by God's grace, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. With joy, that has laughter, joy that cannot be contained, joy that speaks to others what the Lord has done for us. Isn't that what God wants of his people in every age? To tell others what he has done for them? I love the two books of Luke in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's the Gospel of Luke and then there's Acts. And uh, Luke sums up the Gospel of Luke in the first couple verses there of, of Acts chapter 1 where everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the time in which he was taken up, it's covered there in volume 1. It's covered there in the Gospel of Luke, summed up perhaps in Luke 19.30 where the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. A mission accomplished. Now he gives the work to be done to spread that good news. You shall receive power from one on high. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the outermost regions of the world. That brings us to the second part here of our psalm. Verses 4 to 6. And in a sense, there are some things that change. It changes from the past tense of what the Lord has done to the present tense of what they want the Lord to do. It goes from praise, as it were, to petition. Psalm 126, verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. God had called his people. God had redeemed his people. God had saved his people. God had called them back to do his work, to live according to his will, and to be his witnesses. And what they quickly found out was they could never do that in their own strength. You come back and you find that the, the walls are still down, the temple is still raised, and there's such work to do here 
and the enthusiasm could have waned rather quickly. And how is it that we're to accomplish this, this physically tough task? But not only that, there's opposition here in Jerusalem against us. Not everybody's pleased that we come back. Not everybody is, is excited about seeing the work of God accomplished. And there's real danger and there's real threats that we face. How do you deal with that? In prayerful dependence and hope. That's what I take away from these last three verses. In prayerful dependence and hope. They're called upon to do the work of God. And what is it that they do? Verse 4, they pray. I was talking about Luke and Acts and talking about the work that God had given his, his people to do. Those who, who, after the resurrection, he appeared to them and said, you are to wait here for the promised Holy Spirit and you shall receive power from on high. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the outermost regions of the world. Jerusalem. The Jerusalem to which he brought his people back. Jerusalem, where the Lord had been crucified not too many weeks earlier. Jerusalem, where the religious officials were opposed to the work of God. Jerusalem, where they would face threats. Jerusalem, a place of danger. Jerusalem, a place of martyrdom. Jerusalem, how in the world do we do the Lord's work here? Well, how did they start? I like to think they started with a prayer meeting. Sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, <clears throat> done everything we can do, I guess we'll just have to pray. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. They start with prayer. They replaced Judas. Prayer meeting. On the day of Pentecost, they were gathered together in the upper room. What were they doing? I have... Little doubt that they were praying, praying the prayer with in light, praying prayer in, in light of the promise that they would receive power from on high, that the God who had called them to do something would equip and enable and empower them to do so. Started with a prayer. But read the book of Acts. It continues with prayer when they're when they're hauled in before the council, when they're threatened not to speak again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that they were released and they went out and they told their friends. And then what did they do? They had a prayer meeting. And they called upon the sovereign God of heaven and earth and they prayed. And the thing that they prayed for was this, that he might grant to them in the face of all the opposition boldness to speak in the name of Christ. And the scripture tells us this, the place in which they were gathered shook. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and spoke the word with boldness. What are we praying for? Do we believe that God can do this? Here are people here in Psalm 126 say, that say, make the Negev a place that is lush and green. Send your rain. Send your rain to a place that only has on an average of one to eight inches of rain a year. Do it, Lord. 
How do we pray? As we face the task of being witnesses to those around us in either an ever-widening circle, even to the ends of the earth. And I submit to you that we cannot do it apart from prayerfulness. Prayer is an admission of our dependence upon God. Prayer is a confession of our faith in God. That he's able to hear and to answer our prayers. That he's willing to answer those prayers according to his good and perfect will. That we might do what he's called us to do. John Newton wrote a hymn. Come my soul thy suit prepared. Now the word suit there means petition. It means plea. Come my soul your, your petition prepare. Your suit prepare. Come my soul thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Rise and ask without delay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power such, none can ever ask too much. Is that, is that how we pray? As we have been commissioned to be as witnesses in this world, in this community, in this state, in this country, Psalmist says that sowing may be in tears, and he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves home. I think there's a message of hope there. That the sowing will not be in vain, that he will build his church. And that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. There's hope. We labor with, as, as those who have hope. My dad was a gardener. He loved to plant a garden. I wasn't too keen about the sowing and, and all that. But he loved that. And he would go out and he would have the the, the, the uh, garden tilled and then he would go through with his, his push plow, manual push plow, not motorized, and he would make those rows and he would sow the seed with the hope that the rain would come and water the earth and, and then after a while you'd see that little green sprig coming up through the ground. And then all of a sudden you'd see the tomatoes up about that high and then you'd see those little tomatoes coming and you'd see the corn and you'd see the squash and the cucumbers and the, and the bud on the, tomato plant, on the uh, potato plants. And you'd just say, oh boy, one of these days we're going to reap. We're going to have a stack of, of corn on the cob on the table. And we're going to eat tomato sandwiches. And we're going to have potatoes and all this. And hope. Hope. That no matter how difficult it was, we'd reap. And God calls us to reap, but not in a futile manner. He is the Alpha and the Omega of history, the beginning and the end. 
He is sovereign over his creation. And he is working out his plan and purpose as we see in Holy Scripture again and again and again. Let the record show that we might do so in hope. Hope. You know, this is a song of a sense. That's what it says. It's a song. I don't know about you, I love that we have a song to sing. I love that we have somebody to sing about. I love the salvation that he has provided. I love that we can gather for worship and sing. But in a sense, you and I are just like these people singing the song of ascent. From Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, you have 15 psalms, and it said that those who were going up to Jerusalem for the appointed feast that you read about in the book of Leviticus, this is Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles or Booze and all of that, they were going up to celebrate God's redemption of them and his provision for them. They did it on an annual basis. They were going up and as they would go up, they would sing these songs. They had a song to sing of a God who had brought them back. God would save them. And God who had given them joy unspeakable. God who had called them to bear witness. But they were doing so as pilgrims. They were on their way to Jerusalem. And I like to think of us, every one of us today who are in Christ like this. We're just pilgrims. That's all we are. We're pilgrims. We're headed towards Jerusalem, not Jerusalem below. We're not going on a Holy Land door. We're headed for Jerusalem above. We're headed for the new heavens and the new earth. And the holy city coming down, adorned as a bride for the groom. But as we go, we go for those who have been delivered for a purpose, to be his people to do his will, to be at his work, and to do so in the power of the Spirit, and to do so in a way in which he only can help us to persevere because of the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. And we pray that as only the Holy Spirit who inspired the word can, that you might be pleased to apply it to our lives, that you might check our hearts, that we might live our lives to the glory and honor of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.